You're listening to the Pluck Chicken Podcast, where we teach you to stay away from those who say things like this. The first point that we talk to you about being empowered to lead uh, is this, this idea. I want you to know that first, number one, you were born to lead. So you're like, I, I don't see myself as a corporate CEO. I don't see myself as, a, as necessarily an entrepreneur. Some, you do see yourself as that. And you feel like you're trapped in a dead-end role, in a dead-end job. And that you feel that there's more. I, I believe God's going to speak to you and give you visions. He's going to give you dreams about what's next. And then he's going to show you how to gain wisdom as you prepare to move into that. And those who say this. Baptism is intended to be a symbol that symbolizes death into life. It's like a burial followed by a birth. Right. Or this. The Bible says when Jesus held up that bread on that night with his disciples, he just simply said, this would symbolize my body. As well as those who have never studied Greek but want you to believe they have. God's plan is for you and I, his people, to live and walk in power. Now this word power is the Greek word dunamis. Dunamis, it's where we get the word dynamite. It's explosive. It's time now to join your hosts, pastors Devin Kearns and John Bruss, and whoever else they invite as they continue their quest to train you in properly dividing law and gospel and staying away from the sacramentarians. Well, today I am joined by Pastor Lloyd Ginn, who actually serves as the interim in Statesville, North Carolina. What is the name of your church, Pastor Ginn? Holy Trinity. How long have you been there? Almost two years. Two years. I remember when I colloquized into the Southeastern District, I uh, saw you. Unfortunately, we never met one another, uh, but uh, we were at a Winkle just a couple weeks ago. I saw you there. You actually brought up something that Thomas Aquinas had written, and what was that in the, what did you call it, the Segunda? Uh, Secunda Pars of the... It's volume two, second part. Right, and you were talking about uh, something that Aquinas said specifically about anger, and uh, boy, that piqued my interest, and so uh, chased you down at the end of the meeting, and we were able to talk, and uh, you really shocked me when you told me that, that you had taught Roman Catholic doctrine for years and years. Is that correct? That's, that's right. Mostly philosophy. I've had... My secondary work has always been in philosophy, so I taught it in conjunction with my teaching in philosophy. Where did that teaching take place? North Carolina State, North Carolina Wesleyan, um, University of North Carolina Charlotte, uh, Ryan Cabarrus Community College, basically anywhere and everywhere. PhDs were demanded, but not hugely a part of the population. When did you teach at UNCC? Uh, gosh, about seven years ago, I think. When I, um, when I finished seminary, I had to choose between, between teaching and, or I thought I had to choose between teaching and being a pastor. I chose being a pastor. I passed up a tenured position at a Catholic uh, college. But uh, always ended up going back because so few people are in this area and the area that I'm in. So I got to apply my trade uh, as a as a sort of semi expert on uh, on Plato and Aristotle as well as Saint Thomas Aquinas. So it's been fun being a pastor and being a teacher at the same time. Now my background is that I was raised in a Baptist setting, went to a Baptist seminary, planted a Baptist church. Essentially, it was a non-denominational, but we always talk, you know, non-denominationals or simply Southern Baptist. And so this is what I was doing before I started reading more of Luther and really more of the church fathers. And you just see time and time again, just the Catholic nature of the church, the further and further you go back outside of the Bible, the more Catholic you become. Anyway, this is what drew me to Lutheranism. This is what drew me to colloquize into the LCMS and become a Lutheran pastor. But I would say that my knowledge of 
really the distinctives between Lutheranism and Roman Catholicism, they're a little fuzzy. Is there any way that you could kind of bring us up to speed on some of the, the major differences between Roman Catholicism and Lutheranism? Pastor, I think that most people consider the Catholic Church as a sort of a monolithic theology, and I don't see it as that. I think there are two great tributaries in Roman Catholic thinking. Luther is part of one of those tributaries and sort of owes his, um, owes his theology and his thinking and his very being to that tradition. As, as simply as I can make this, I think it's uh, via Antiqua, pulls off the church fathers. You can trace that down through the early Augustan into St. Thomas Aquinas. And they have Via Moderna, is another tributary of Catholic thinking. Comes from the later Augustine through Bonaventure to Occam, who was uh, Luther called Occam his dear teacher. He was a student of Occam through Trutfelter and Gabriel Beale. That's called, the, as I said, the Via Moderna. And so in, in many ways, I think Luther's solidly in that tradition. So he's, a, he's, a, he's one of those Catholic tributaries. Now, that's going to sound weird to our uh, Lutheran friends everywhere, I think. But I do believe that it's, uh, it's a fact. And before we started, we might mention that we were talking about the Catholic Tübingen School uh, Ferdinand Christian Bauer taught there. Uh, Johann Sebastian Dre was part of the Catholic faculty at Tübingen. And uh, I think Lutheranism and Catholicism interacted more fully at Tübingen than any place since. Bauer used to drive uh, Johann Otto Merler, the Catholic Church historian, crazy by claiming that uh, the Lutheran Church was the Catholic Church. And, of course, uh, being a church historian, Bauer just could not, uh, I mean, uh, Merler just could not fathom that. But there's a, there's a huge tradition, I think, which ties Luther through Via Moderna back to Occam to that secondary tributary in Catholic thinking. I hope that's clear. So he's two main tributaries. Luther comes out of the second tributary, the Via Moderna. Well, when you mentioned that, that reminded me of um, a video th- series that came out. It was pretty exciting. A couple of years ago, Will Whedon was being interviewed uh, by uh, the, I think it's he's called, I don't even know his name, 10-minute um, Bible hour, something or another. And uh, this is what he said. Lutheran self-identity, historically, was that we are the Western Catholic Church. We are the Western Catholic Church. We are that church cleansed by the gospel. And so when he said that, uh, man, the, the interviewer, and I, I believe he's a pastor of a non-denom somewhere, uh, evangelical free church, if I'm not mistaken, his brain just exploded when uh, Will Whedon said that. The, the free church, I began uh, my ministry in um, Iowa and the free church is huge in, in Iowa. So I'm sure, it, knowing what I know about the, the free church, that would blow their mind. There's a big tradition in Lutheranism, not just in Missouri, uh, but in the uh, ELCA as well, uh, called Evangelical Catholicism, that holds to the basic sacraments of the church and the liturgy and everything else that uh, makes us Catholic. The, the great thing about Missouri, as opposed to any of these others, is I think we've been able to hold to the truth longer than any other Protestant uh, group. And now it seems, even to the, uh, as opposed to the Catholic group, the groups, uh, simply because of our belief, our holding fast to biblical inerrancy. So I would define Missouri Synod as holding closely to the idea of biblical inerrancy along with our Catholic tradition as the definitive characteristics of Missouri Synod. That has saved us, I think, from left-wing Lutheranism, which developed in Germany with uh, Ritual Harnock uh, and the liberal tradition that was so roundly criticized by Barton and Bonhoeffer. 
and the um, the Catholic tradition, which remained true to itself in some ways because of uh, uh, Klutgen, the uh, who was uh, president of the Congregation of Faith in the latter part of the 19th century, and single-handedly kept the Catholic Church from going down the modernist route by holding fast to Aquinas. And Missouri left Germany rather than completing that full circle of left-wing Lutheranism that led to the ELCA, I think, through Ritzel and Harnock, and by holding to the principle of biblical inerrancy, Missouri has kept, in my thinking, at least the closest form of the Catholic Church as it was known from New Testament times to the Church Fathers. Now let me switch gears real quick, just because uh, you you mentioned this, and I believe that you were uh, historically a part of this. You mentioned the ELCA, and when I was certainly interested in becoming a Lutheran pastor, uh, one of the things that I would hear quite often as I was hanging out with Lutheran pastors is the walkout that took place at the seminary in St. Louis. And uh, I am assuming, based upon your age, that you were there? Secondhand. How is that? My work was at um, the Div School at the um, University of Chicago, and um, my Lutheran training was through LSTC, which is the old Seminex, which was the walkout. And tell us what took place there and what led to that and really the ramifications that we still live with today. If we, if we trace Luther, we begin, we begin with Augustine, of course, and then the great William of Ockham, I, one of the premier thinkers in all of human history, is an Augustinian. He was the teacher of Beale, who was the teacher of Trutfelter. I think I've got that progression in line. So Luther is, is being taught by the people who have started to practice the Vio Moderna. So his take on Luther is really a Catholic take on Luther and not unique to Luther. He's attacking Aquinas because his teachers have attacked Aquinas. Because they have a theological, um, they have a theological opposition to Saint Thomas. I'm thinking of Ignatius of Loyola. He's the one that sought to put an end to what took place in the Reformation. Yeah, right. Yeah. So much so that he's the one that started the Jesuit right. arm of the Catholic Church. Is that correct? That's correct, which is now the liberal arm of the Catholic Church. It's ironic, is it not? Explain. Uh, they are the innovative arm of the Catholic, current Catholic Church. The Jesuit. The Jesuit. It, I, I, well, don't get me started. I, I, we're here to get you started, <laughs> Pastor Ginn. This is why we're here. I, I blame the Jesuits for a lot of things. Um, my teachers were Jesuits, so they're good Jesuits. I mean, I had some great teachers. But um, in, but in many ways, they have a secular bent, which I disagree with. So there's a secular end, I think, even to contemporary. I am going to get in trouble on this. There, there, is, a, there is a secular bent to contemporary um, Jesuit teaching, and it can be problematic. Let, let's just leave it there. I'm sure that you started out with that same... Well, you already mentioned, you know, you started out with this liberal type of mindset yeah. and yeah. and how the Lord... The Lord worked through that with me. But to, to reroute you... You have to come to the truth. <laughs> exactly. You said earlier about how what you saw, and I, I think I'm right here, uh, when you said that what you saw, even though you disagree with parts of it, you saw this this beautiful system, this this logical uh, schema uh, that the Roman Catholic has. I'd love to know where you disagree, even though it's a beautiful system. I mean, beautiful systems at some point can still be wrong. Exactly. Yes. And, and so I'd love for you to, to touch on those points that are incorrect. Well, when elegance becomes elegance for elegance's sake, strange things and bad things can happen. But let, let me be clear about this, where I truly stand on this. Some sort of scholasticism is necessary to save the church. 
Uh, the most influential thinker in my life is a fellow by the name of Robert Charlman, who was writing in 1960, 1961. The book is out of print. If anybody can get a hold of it, do, because I think it's maybe the best thing ever written. And I, I, I've read a lot of great things, but uh, this is uh, Charlman's book is St. Thomas Aquinas and Johann Gerhard on scholasticism. Both of them are scholastic theologians. And scholasticism has always saved the church from weaseling error. <laughs> Soft thinking error. Which well, are, that's prevalent today, is it not? Which is rampant yeah. in the modern church. Yeah. So some kind of return to scholasticism, I would argue, in the order of Gerhardt, is necessary for the modern church if it is to save itself, if it's to do its part in becoming the church of Jesus Christ, then some sort of scholasticism. And this, Gerhard stopped so many errors that were occurring in the rationalist tradition in Germany that followed the Reformation. And a, a fellow by the name of Klutgen, I think I mentioned him earlier, who was head of the Congregation of the Faithful for almost the entire end of the 19th century, saved the Catholic Church from going down the Schleiermacher rat hole that the contemporary church, the, 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 the contemporary church vis-a-vis the ELCA has gone down without really knowing the rat hole that it's going down. Now, there are reasons to read Ritchell and Harnock. They were great theologians. They were the apologists for uh, this sort of loosey-goosey, the church sort of morphing into the state theology that was late 19th century Lutheranism and led directly to Adolf Hitler. My goodness. Uh, I don't even know where to start. Let me start with this. I'll do a low-hanging fruit here. You're in a, a minority view. You, number one, you're in a minority denomination, LCMS. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You are in a minority view within the minority denomination. There's not many like you, what you just espouse there. Well, I'm, I'm, I think Francis Pieper agrees with me. I, okay, so there's two of you. <laughs> okay. So my question is, Number one, do you have any friends? Number um, two. Well, I think you and I are friends. <laughs> yeah. I, I've got one, and, and my wife likes me. I was just going to say, so your wife, really, you're, I, was, I was thinking about your kids, actually, because I think about my kids. Uh, I, I would espouse not nearly as, as good of, uh, of a job as you, you have done here in just a few moments, but I would espouse the same thing if we were gathered together and I wasn't pastoring and we were going to this church. And as we're driving home, I'm trying to put the best construction on everything. But my kids realize that I that I think that it was, what did you say a little while ago, loopy-doopy? Loosey-goosey. Loosey-goosey. Uh, that I'll think, ah, it's a little that's campy. A, that's a theological Oh, it, yes, of course it is, of course. Uh, that I'll think it was too campy or it was loosey-goosey. And my kids pick up on this. They they know. Uh, they've been around me. Your kids have been around you. They, they know what you're thinking, but, you know, it still might come out in the car ride home. When you hold such a minority view, but yet you can see, as you just said, you can see churches go down these rat holes that you're like, this is not going to get you where you think it's going to get you. When the Lutheran church, when it tries to be more like the evangelical church down the road, this whole David Lukey, uh, you know, Lutheran substance with the evangelical style, nobody is going to be pleased with the outcome. It might be a fun, fun ride for a little while, but eventually the train tracks give way, and there's nothing but the canyon. Well, I don't agree with um, with left wing Protestantism too much, but I do uh, agree with Tillich, and in in some aspects, uh, Tillich's great statement is that the world needs a church which has Catholic substance, what he called Catholic substance and Protestant principle. That's Missouri right now. That is Missouri. We are the last 
my friend. We're the last that, that still has the vestige of that hope in it. We are the last. We are the only chance that this culture has to uphold a, a principled tradition. I believe you. That's why I joined the LCMS. But we are hanging on like a hair in a biscuit. I stopped off at McDonald's before I came. That that scares me when you talk about the <laughs> hair in the biscuit. I, I didn't see it, at least. <laughs> Pastor, I do, I do think that our two seminaries, especially, I mean, I'm going to call out Fort Wayne here, especially, are still turning out the best pastors in the country. I would totally agree with you. And this is one of the things, again, I, I hate to refer back to this so many times, but when I came into Lutheranism and spent time with the pastors, now I will be the first one to say, coming from my teetotaling days as a Southern Baptist, the LCMS pastors, I mean, they're, they're the frat boys of Christianity, I'd never had a beer in my life <laughs> until I met a Lutheran pastor. But I would say they are the smartest guys in the room. If you put Lutheran pastors up against, say, Southern Baptist pastors, I'm not saying, you know, I'm, I'm being very general here, obviously. there's, But to a man, for the most part, they have been better educated and they're more knowledgeable of church history and church doctrine. So it's to your point. And also, too, I would argue that both of our seminaries, they are turning out, let me say it like this, and and forgive me if I'm wrong here, but it seems like there was a boomer mentality that hit in the LCMS that really drove drove the church away, so to speak, from the confessions, from liturgics, from those things to being more loosey-goosey. But my point is, to finish it, finish it up before you say anything, it's moving back, is my point. It's moving away from that. The seminaries are producing and forming pastors who are going to go into these churches, and slowly, it doesn't, as you know, it doesn't happen overnight. It's a very slow process in pulling it back and making it more orthodox. That's my observation. Your take. I agree. Now, I'm not. I'm not a stupid person. I'm, I mean, but I was at a, a professional workers conference uh, last uh, Monday with a, a young pastor making a presentation on the what's coming down the pike in the new Nestle Allen 29 edition Greek. That's going to uh, take into account all of the discoveries of the papyri of the last hundred years. So he was pulling together some of the. Um, some of the developments uh, in the, as they began to translate and make that new Nestle Allen. Uh, this young man is brilliant. And the questions that were asked of him by the pastors who were there were brilliant. I mean, they had not just uh, a command of the scriptures, which you would expect. And, and by the way, that I, that's what you get when you get biblical inerrancy. You get people who take the scriptures seriously. So we had that, but just the prescience, the, um, the integrity, and the depth of the questions that were asked were amazing. And I've been around academic circles all my life, and those pastors, those young pastors were asking more pointed, sharpened questions than I would expect to hear in a faculty meeting. So I, I, um, I am encouraged by a new generation of pastors. We're still a hair in a biscuit, but it's a it's a real thick hair. <laughs> is is what I'm is what I'm hearing. Not I, one of the thin hairs yeah. like you and I have. At the same time, we have kept our integrity better than anybody else that I know of. Even in the present situation the church is in. So I, I still commend the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod to anybody who's interested in a serious and seriously going after their love of God, pursuing a life of beatitude. There are more resources available now to the average evangelical Christian that speak of, let's say, the church fathers. You can go into a Christian bookstore, and you can actually 
find a few books. It's not a lot, but it's certainly more than more than were available 20 years ago. And we're not talking about, you know, a shelf full of patristics. We're talking about just a, a small book on great fathers of the church and things that they said regarding XYZ. Then you get into the series, I believe his name is, um, is it Tom Ogden? Not familiar with it. You are, I'm just butchering his name. The Ancient Christian Commentary series. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Joel, uh, Joel, um, Elsh- uh, uh, oh man, he teaches at uh, St. Louis. Ah, man, Joel, 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 Alaski, Alaski is the editor of that. He's um he's a um a church historian. He's our church. He is the premier church historian in the country, as far as I'm concerned. So somebody starts reading that, they start reading the patristics. Why is it that so many folks who make a conversion, like they go Greek Orthodox. They might go to Rome, but it's like Lutheranism is the ugly girl at the dance. Nobody, nobody wants to Nobody wants to talk to her. Because we have the, um, the ELCA in tow. That's, simple, that's the simple answer. So because of, and listen, when I started looking into Lutheranism, I mean, yeah, you, you'd look online and you see the presence of Elka there, and boy, you got to take a shower after you look into what's going on there. So you want... Nothing to do with it. So you that, think that's the that's, that's the that's, reason. That is it. Yes, yes. And and I would argue with some of our leadership that we haven't done enough uh, to differentiate ourselves. Well, what more that. can we do? Haven't wasn't there a letter written just a couple years ago about how it set from the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod that said something to the extent of the um, Elka Church is anathema. I think it's local preaching is the answer and there's also also missouri Synod people are the nicest people on the face of the earth they're not <laughs> they don't like to talk about people and i've been talking about people all morning long <laughs> but but your traditional missouri Synod pew guy and and uh, bishop chair guy uh does not like to do it they, they will tell you about it if you ask them but for the most part, they do lead the, uh, what's the scripture say, just lead a peaceable life, yes, right? exactly. Well, that's that's the problem with being Missouri Synod. You know, you would like to take some people up and just shake them. But then you got you got to go through Jesus and the Apostle Paul, who says, as much as it's up to you, live it. You know, don't do that. Right. So, I mean, it's we're biblical people. We're, we're nice people. We don't riot and we don't stomp around and we don't talk about our neighbors, sometimes even if they needed needed talking about. Okay, all right. So now this conversation is going everywhere. I, I certainly am enjoying it. I hope uh, a listener or two might get something out of it. I cut you off uh, a little while ago when you brought about uh, the progression that went to uh, through certain teachers all the way down to Adolf Hitler. Right. So when you think about the Lutheran mind and how it's generally nice people, so then you think about you do have a Hitler rise to power, and you don't have, I'm sure there were lots of Lutherans who were against them. Bonhoeffer, obviously, uh, was one, and, and there were many others. But for the most part, he was able to rise to power and get a hearing within those who were Lutheran. That is entirely the responsibility and and lays at the foot of the 19th century Lutheran church. They created Adolf Hitler by relativizing scripture. So, it was Namoller who said, you know, they came for the Jew and I wasn't a Jew, so I didn't say anything. And they came for the uh, the gays and the lesbians, and I wasn't a gay and a lesbian, so I didn't say anything. They had the, the church itself had created a situation where Hitler was the logical idea, because according to Harnock and and Marx really develops 
his ideas in many ways from Richard Trollson Harnock, his idea of the uh, withering away of the state in Marx had its predecessor in the, uh, in the Trollsian idea of the withering away of the church. So the church was simply to become liberal society. It, the church was to disappear and simply morph into left-wing state. <laughs> Isn't history repeating itself, Pastor? That's my point. That's my point, Pastor. It is. Now it's not just, uh, it, now it's a Protestant idea. I mean, in, in many ways, you know, with the, the, the right-wing Protestantism has been accused of sort of trying to massage uh, politics. But in reality, all of this time, the left-wing Protestant church has been creating a situation where it is disappearing into liberal democracy and proud of it. When I tune in to right-leaning news, and not just news mainstream, but um, some alternative news sites when I check in with those, you'll hear this plea to return to God. Like, we as a nation need to return to God. I agree with that message. But when you think about all the schisms and what people think about God and who God is— that message is not even very clear. Like, what are we returning to? Are we returning to a form of evangelicalism? Are we referring to turning to, you know, some sort of social gospel God? Well, I think in Missouri we would express that we are to go to God, not back to God. There's never been a back to God. We're going to heaven we are to live as if we are going to heaven. And when you live as if you are going to heaven, what is humanity going to do to you? Nothing. That's the whole point of the hope of the, of the martyr in Revelation. And John is speaking not just to the dead in heaven, but to the dying in the church. Those are the ones that are hidden in the altar of heaven. They belong to heaven. That means you have a different relationship to this world. You have a different relationship to politics. You don't go back to anything. That was the bad old days. And today, tomorrow will be the bad old day. Luther said, what would you do if you found out the world was going to end tomorrow? You'd plant a tree today. Well, you live with hope right now. No matter if you're in the fray, the dying thief on the cross says, Lord, remember me when you come to, into your kingdom. And Jesus uses an order of verb that means right now he's with him in paradise. Man, we're on a cross. How can we be in paradise? Well, you're with Jesus. You're with God. The past doesn't make any difference. It's the future that the church lives for. Let's go back to Roman Catholic theology for a moment. In one of the podcasts that I was doing with Pastor Bruss, years ago, we were listening to an evangelical sermon that focused so much attention upon, you know, getting direct messages from God and certain sensations and feelings and all of this, uh, really direct downloads, if, uh, if I recall correctly. Pastor Bruss mentioned that this is exactly what takes place within the schema of Roman Catholicism, this whole notion of the Lord using, you know, various means of meditation or Lectio Divina or any type of mysticism to speak directly to you outside of what God's Word has said. Now, if you told that to an evangelical that you're being very Roman Catholic, I mean, they would they would run sure kicking yeah. and screaming, you yeah. know. But clearly, he was right because as I've been listening to Roman Catholic teaching as of late, you hear a lot of this. I don't discount the idea that we have a lectio divina within Missouri Synod as well. As a matter of fact, we do. We call it preaching. And if you can't get to preaching, your Bible is right there on the coffee table. 
And this is so, why when in the Lutheran Church, and I would say in, in Anglican and Roman Catholic, uh, this is why when the Scriptures are read, we don't say at the end of it, thank you, Pastor. We say, right. thanks be to God. God just spoke to us audibly. Yeah, I mean, we, uh, and this is the great thing about real Lutherans, <laughs> is that it's very practical, right. real stuff. Right. I mean, God comes to us in reality, Concretely. Not, concretely. Tactile, yes. Yes, exactly. And uh, he comes to us in the spoken and written and read word. He comes to us in the Holy Supper. He comes to us in the waters of baptism. All of those things that we can feel and hear and, and really get involved with. I tell my people, and this is true in my life too, because I preach a bad sermon doesn't mean that you're not supposed to hear a good one. Some of the best sermons I've ever had were the worst sermons I've ever heard. God spoke to me in, <laughs> in clear and distinct <laughs> ways in some of those terrible sermons that I've heard. Uh, Nick Dizaterna, no, no, no more of these tones. So God speaks to us, and it doesn't have to necessarily have to be the have to be the good word. Sometimes it's the hard word that's hard to hear, and and that's who we are as Lutherans. There's none. We don't leave. There's nothing left to chance when it comes to God. So going back to the things in the Roman Catholic schema that you don't agree with, you've already touched on a number of them. Obviously, one of them being the lack of authority. Maybe that's not the, the you know we would say as Lutherans the authority of God's word. Yes. And we would also say what we just talked about. There is an emphasis upon uh, enthusiasm. Uh, looking for God within, on the inside, right, right. Uh, in Roman Catholic dogma. What else is there that you would say you don't agree with? There are so many wonderful things about the Roman Catholic faith that nobody pays any attention to. Like what? Like the catechism, for one thing. Fair. I mean, the catechisms, I mean, I'm talking about their catechism. Right. Their catechism, so you don't pray to Mary. There's no other way to heaven except through Jesus Christ. And him crucified. But so many of the bishops tolerate Mary and prayers and everything else because why? Well, that's where church growth happens. So many people coming in from other areas of the world where this has been tolerated for centuries, encouraged for centuries against the teaching of the church itself. But it's become so synonymous with Catholicism that everybody now assumes you just pray to Mary. The Roman Catholic Catechism doesn't teach that you pray to Mary? You, at, you may ask Mary. You may plead with Mary. As a matter of fact, you do. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us now in the hour of our death. That's the beginning of the rosary, of course. But that's not necessarily understood as a prayer to Mary. It is a prayer that's presented, but the prayer is to Jesus. And, and not to marry his mother. So there is, in the classic teaching of the church, a, a prohibition against what has become so accepted within Catholic practice. And the bishops refuse to say, don't do that. Now look, I'm, I mean, I'm not faulting the Catholic bishops because I'm looking at ELCA bishops, at, at <laughs> Anglican bishops, at I'm say Episcopalian bishops, at at Methodist bishops who are who are doing no better. Why? Because they don't begin with the book. So you have human reason, you have you have enlightenment, not scripture. I'll give you an example of that. I was talking to a Roman Catholic friend just yesterday, and we were talking about praying to Mary. And it wasn't just Mary, I, I believe it included, you know, all the saints praying to various saints. And he said would you have a problem asking me to pray for you about something? And I said, absolutely not. But the problem is, your illustration makes perfect sense, but that's not the authority of what Scripture teaches. we we got to go to another authority, not something that just makes sense. The listeners of the Pluck Chicken podcast listen to this all the time because I don't know how many times I've heard it. 
And it's this whole idea, Pastor, of evangelicals who will talk about baptism, and they will say that it's no different from wearing a wedding ring. Have you heard this in oh, evangel? Yeah. Okay, so you've heard it. I believe Rick Warren started it, and it has just grown like kudzu all over the world, unfortunately. Everybody uses this example. You listen to that example, and you say, well, that makes sense. The problem is, is that the wedding ring analogy is nowhere found in the scriptures. Exactly. And that's the reason that we do not, we do not directly pray to Mary, and we don't directly pray to the saints because that's not in Scripture. Okay, so with that being said then, what about the issue of purgatory? Purgatory is a perfectly rational explanation. And, I mean, it's perfectly rational. As a matter of fact, it, um, you know, you have one way of looking at Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. And then you have St. Paul and Thessalonians that say, the, you know, the, the dead will be raised first. The uh, so how, do, how why how does that how's that different? I mean, how's this immediacy thing and then the future thing brought together? Well, purgatory is a beautiful way to do that, but it's extra scriptural, and that's the problem for us as Missouri Synod people. We we don't like extra scriptural things, and by by gosh and by golly, the reason we haven't fallen for everything is because we have that principle. So even though the doctrine of purgatory stems from the Apocrypha. Yeah, it does, but that even that's kind of Old Testament teaching, and we can talk about the Apocrypha forever. But the Apocrypha, is, there's nothing wrong with the Apocrypha. Right. It's just not sacred scripture. I, I think Sirach was Luther's favorite book. And the Apocrypha was one that he, a, a part of his translation Father's into trans- German. Yeah, yeah. And by the way, you know, one of the Lutheran study Bible that, that Concordia puts out is the best study Bible in the whole world. The whole world, the Pastor? Whole, the whole world. <laughs> but they drop the ball. Instead of putting the Apocrypha in the middle, they just do a little blurb about the Apocrypha. And then, the, well, what they sell it separately. I mean, it's CPH, yeah, right? I, I mean, I, they're going to I know, but they're going to get you somehow. Any decent Bible has got the Apocrypha in it. <laughs> Not a separate volume. Not a separate volume. No, no. Do it the way Luther did it. <laughs> Include it, dog on it. <laughs> do, do what the master did. I, I just, just. You know, it is it is interesting how so many in the Christian tradition either a they poo poo the apocrypha or b don't even know that it exists. You know, when you turn the page from Malachi and then you move into Matthew. Uh, yeah, there's 400 years here that's taken place, and the Great Wall of China has been built, and Alexander the Great has come to power and done his thing. I mean, a lot of major things happen in that 400 years. Included with those, you get into Matthew, and you're introduced to Pharisees and Herodians and Sadducees and synagogues. It's like, where did any of these things come from? Well, the Apocrypha helps us... Uh, understand where they came from. That's and, the reason it should be read religiously. And uh, and it should be right there in the middle, yeah, to your exactly. point. Easily accessible. <laughs> because you don't know the context of the New Testament unless you read the Apocrypha. You do not know first century Judaism unless you know the Maccabees. You don't do it. You don't you don't get it. If you don't if you aren't familiar with the Maccabees, you don't get the, the you don't get the solitary of first century Judaism. And if anybody is listening, uh, you can look online. There are faithful Lutheran churches that have their Bible studies uh, online, uh, even before COVID, for crying out loud. And some of those are working their way through the Apocrypha. Pastor, could we return for a moment to, uh, to the saints and to Mary? Please, it's not that we like we we Lutherans don't get to do away with Mary or the saints. As a matter of fact, we have in the funeral service we we talk about the communion of saints. Correct. The um, the old Lutheran teaching about about the Eucharist is that we gather with the hosts of heaven. I mean, this is not something we just do in this little tiny church here or there as a sort of a private party that we have. Right. This is celestial stuff. 
This this is uh, this is occurring in heaven, and it is it literally is a Greek icon. If you want to see what heaven looks like, there it's gathered with it with the faithful saints at at the little tiny Lutheran church down the street, because that's what heaven's going to look like. And and that's the reason we believe in the communion of saints, because we gather with the saints. And we take it seriously when Paul says that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. As a matter of fact, the old Swedish churches had it right. The Raridas, the railing went behind the Raridas. That's where, that's where the hosts were gathered. Now it just holds wheelchairs and extra seating. <laughs> because we've forgotten Lutheran truth. You know, uh, that reminds me, there was a church, the railing was round. Yep. And what the pastor would say is, is how... Even though you only see half of it, it actually yeah, yeah, yeah. encompasses yeah, yeah. the the altar. It goes, as you said, behind the raridos, behind the behind the altar, and uh, we are gathered with with the saints. I mean, and that's even what we say in the um, proper preface. Yeah, as a matter of fact, we um, we could say as Lutherans, pray to them nothing. We eat with them. <laughs> That's great. Because now, every Lutheran knows that's where truth happens. Amen. Amen. With, a, with fork in hand. Where, though, would the Immaculate Conception of Mary take place? That's another mystery of the church. We don't know. We just take, the, we just take Scripture at, at its word for that. But now you have to remember, the Holy Spirit is inside Mary. It's inside us too. That's that's exactly what Holy Communion is. It's not just a it's not just a dressing. The whole it's a marinade. So we don't get to say, "Ah, Mary, you know, just another woman," or she was a, she was a great one. She was a great, maybe the greatest woman ever. We don't get to say that. She is the vessel of the Lord God. Now you can't get around that. I mean, the Catholics are absolutely right about that. And if there's anything they can teach us, it is Mary. Queen of heaven? Mother of God. Theotokos. So, yeah. I mean, if she's the mother of God, what's a queen? So, no, it's not, she's not queen of heaven. She's Theotokos. It's bigger than that. The, the word of God begins in her, in her. So the word comes out of her. I love that where it says, uh, may the word of God dwell in you richly. And uh, I think about uh, Mary when I hear that. The word of God did yeah. dwell in her for, for nine months. Yeah, well, if you want, I mean, if you if you look at, she, she becomes the... It, for for Paul and Ephesians, I mean, and and, and uh, yeah, and Ephesians and Colossians, she she simply becomes the paradigm for what you are to become. Right. So we are we are we are star children. I mean, that, the 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 message of Colossians is just is 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 huge. The taking over the world, over the cosmos, and and we for, we forget. We, the, one of the problems with the modern church is that it doesn't know what in the heck time is. It has gotten so preoccupied with, with history. Well, I was going to say it's gotten so preoccupied with the here and now, though. Well, well yeah. Well, history is simply the here and now. Okay, okay. The, the great German uh, historian, I uh, can't remember, and if somebody asked him what history was, and he said, just one damn thing after another. <laughs> Ronka, yeah. So I mean that it's the here and now. It's it's we're preoccupied with that, and by gosh and by golly, the church that's preoccupied with the world is not a biblical church, because we are children of eternity and not time. We are children of the cosmos, and not just this little part of it, little tiny speck in it. That reminds me of where Paul says something about how where you were washed and you were justified, and then he talks about how and you were glorified. Yes, exactly. As if it, you know, that's already taken place. Yeah. yeah. And you read that and you think, no, Paul, you you got you you got a little senior moment there. 
That's happening later. That's, that's not here and now. Well, that's not what he talks about. He talks about it is a present reality. You're dead, brother, so that you can really live. I happen to be a good friend of the late uh, priest who was dean of the chapel at, uh, at Cambridge. And Desmond Tutu applied to, for PhD program. And part of the requirements of the dean was to interview PhD candidates in theology. And so he interviewed Desmond Tutu. And he said, I looked into his eyes and I saw a dead man. And um, I said, brother, you need to go back to Africa. You're dead. What's a PhD to a dead man? So we're dead. And what are all of these things that we do to us? We're dead. And that's the good news. So what's the world going to do to us? Are we going to decline and become a non-entity as far as religion goes? What's the world going to do to you? Preach the faith right now. What, what, what's, what do you do if you find out tomorrow that you're a dead denomination? Preach the word today. Preach it while you're here. And uh, that's the great gift to me of the Missouri Senate, is we preach the truth despite the world, despite time, despite history. And despite the scorn. And despite the scorn. And we don't ever, ever back down. That's, that's who we are, and that's how we'll die, hopefully. My fa- father used to say it was much better to go into the side of the mountain with afterburners on the down in the flames. And that's exactly the way I see this theology thing that we're doing. Let's, let's go full burner. I love it. Pastor Ginn, it's been a delight. We've been together here a little over an hour, and uh, I look forward to another conversation with you very soon. Thank you very much. Nice to be with you today, Pastor. You've been listening to the Pluck Chicken Podcast with your hosts, Pastors Devin Kearns and John Brock. If you'd like to support the work they do, go to their Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash the plucked chicken. Say, hey, yeah, 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 yeah.